This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Just trying to wait me out, Craig. Is that what's hey, happening here? Hey, <laughs> everybody! Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and we have two special guests this week from one of our sibling podcasts. Your only sibling podcast, sir. I suppose that's true. Thank you. The only one we talk to. Hey. (laughs) So you just heard the voice of Margaret H. Willison. What up, Margaret? Hi, guys. And joining us also, who hasn't spoken yet because she is patiently waiting her turn on like Margaret, is Catherine (laughs) Van Arendonk. How's it going, Catherine? I, an eldest sibling, follow follow the rules. Sure. Rules are for tools, I say. Margaret and I don't know what we're doing. We're babies. (laughs) Yeah. The fun of being an eldest sibling is it's like part following the rules, but part also making the rules. Yep. 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 The fun about being a younger sibling is nobody cares about the rules by the time you're being raised. Especially if you're charming enough to be like the most pleasantly disobedient person in the world. Like nobody Mm -hmm. I know. Mm hmm. Well, you guys do a TV podcast, uh, appointment television, or is it Bone Zone now? What is it called? (laughs) We're in flux. (laughs) In flux. We're in a period of transition. Um, No, we make a we make a podcast called Appointment Television. Uh, It comes out every Thursday. We talk about uh, the television show Bones. Mostly and also... the television show Bones. Frequently. I feel like on our episode about Bones, we didn't talk about Bones that much more than we normally talk about Bones. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> it just felt like a regular old episode for us. Somebody emailed Overdue to ask if I knew how much I talked about the show Bones. So like over the <laughs> over the catalog just of Overdue, I guess? Yeah. And a little bit from acknowledging ATV in that email. But like, oh man, that's what happens when you do a TV show for 2,000 years or a podcast for 2,000 years or a TV show like Bones for 2,000 years. Um but thank you for being here. We're recording this in early July before Andrew takes off to help rear a child for a few weeks. Like a loser. Like a like a big brother would, except yeah. it's not going to be a big brother. He's going to be a papa. Um, yeah. The papa is the biggest brother of them all. <laughs> am I right? I don't actually think that. <laughs> well, I feel like Catherine is the expert on that here. There are different <laughs> schools of thought. So we figured... That we would have some pals on to to help uh, make content, but also to have one of our pals who's already an expert in her own right on making people um, tell us about a book that's related to that topic. Catherine, what book did you bring for us this week? This week we will be discussing one of the classics of parenting help book, that genre. (laughs) It is called... It's going to be great. This podcast is going to be fantastic. It's called Siblings Without Rivalry. 
by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslick. Maslick, I think right. it says Maslish, but I heard her pronounce her name Maslick on a very old video from the 80s. So that's okay. what I'm going to say. <laughs> she probably, she well, probably knows. Get, yeah. Could you get Claren to pronounce it? Because I think she'd crush it. Yeah, Claire probably would. My So I have two children. Okay. Uh, they are five and two. They are, they are both girls, Claire and Alice. Um, and so this book I have been meaning, it is literally overdue in my life, as I have in <laughs> fact been meaning to read it for quite a long time. Um, I had already read a different book that actually, um, so Adele Faber's daughter has also entered into this genre and has been writing some parenting books. Um, Adele and Elaine wrote this book that was a follow-up to Siblings Without Rivalry called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And Adele's daughter wrote a newer edition of that called How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen um, because some of the some of the feedback of both siblings without rivalry and how to talk so kids will listen is that they are a little bit more helpful for kids who like have the capacity to reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more, but I, it is a book that I have been meaning to read for quite a long time in part because I know that um, it's very well reviewed, but also because I remember finding it on my mom's bookshelf as a teenager interesting so i and i have to say like i get along very well with my sister did you when you were teens and one of the and we actually did i mean obviously we have fought but even when we were teens we got along better than many of my friends and their siblings did um, and I and I was also capable of recognizing at a fairly young age that we got along pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so literally, I remember finding this on her bookshelf and being like, oh, she was doing experiments on us. <laughs> so you're saying you're, you're both a consumer of and product of this work. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I will put forward that like we can't entirely rule out that like you just have the best little sister in the world. Oh yeah, I mean, no question, no question. Laura's I, my, really great. My little sister is fantastic, and if I could not recognize her amazing qualities, that would be a significant um, problem for like my capacity for reason. But but it's hard. I mean, siblings are really are tough, as we are going to talk about uh, more in a second. <laughs> and I don't think it's a given that we would have gotten along um, as well as we did as early as we did. That's okay. true. You could have been threatened by how great she was. It's true. It's true. It really it is true. Andrew, has this appeared on any lists that you've seen, or is this the first you've heard of this book? This is the first I've heard of it. I'm not gonna lie. Like I haven't been I asked actually Catherine about this a couple weeks ago. Is like what what am I what do I read? Like what's I know back in the day you had like your Dr. Spock's and whatever, and as problematic as some of the advice in that is or that we think it is now. There was at least like a, a child rearing book canon that I think most people knew about and could go to. And now it's just like you Google it and you go to Reddit and then you Google it and you go to Reddit. <laughs> and it's like it's this whole this is this is the way that the Internet has been bad. It's a way the Internet has been bad. <laughs> sure. Is that everybody feels qualified and everybody has an opinion and there's good and bad advice everywhere. And where do you even go? Nobody knows. So yeah. that's. 
that's interesting because you you asked us, Catherine, to look a little bit into where these ladies came from to write these books um, based on some of the criticism you'd seen that you just mentioned uh, earlier. But also, I think because this is like a little bit in between that, like I this is my field of study. So now I will come out of the ivory parenting tower and tell you what I have writ versus like mom blogger 25 who's like here's what my kid did and here's how i reacted to it um so let me just read the bios that they have on their website adele faber was graduated from queen's college with a ba in theater and drama earned her master's degree in education from new york university and taught in the new york city high schools for eight years elaine maslick was graduated from New York University with a Bachelor of Science degree in theater arts and directed children's programs at Grosvenor House and Lenox Hill Settlements. I think they were like settlement schools for kids. Uh, She is also a professional artist and composer. And both authors studied with the late child psychologist Dr. Chaim Gannott and are former members of the faculty of the New School for Social Research in New York and the Family Life Institute of Long Island University. Are we like a hundred percent sure that Hayam Gannat is not Gannat made up? <laughs> uh, if you Google him, there are photos of him. <laughs> that could I be a con, though. I can't go. I can't go farther than that. But like, <laughs> somebody's put a lot of effort into making it look like he's real. So if he's fake, it's a long con. It's a long right. Con. Okay, yes. man, yes. you're really tying my brain up in Gannats over this guy <laughs> now. His first book was written in 1965. It was called Between Parent and Child. Um, He studied clinical psychology at Columbia University, got his doctorate in 1952, worked worked with troubled children at the Jacksonville Guidance Clinic in Florida. Not sure what exactly that means, Um, but he is like the progenitor of what these ladies went on to like write about and work with a lot. they you shared of with me and and everyone else i don't know who else watched it catherine a video of them talking about like discovering him at a nur- a lecture at a nursery school which is a sentence <laughs> <laughs> um where sh- i think it was faber who had like been teaching and then stopped because she was having a kid and then um, like raising a family and went to this like, oh, uh, I guess I'm going to hear somebody tell me how I'm a bad parent or whatever. And then was just kind of blown away by what he had to say. And then she met this woman, Elaine, and was like, hey, let me let me bully you into writing a book with me or something. Like we should <laughs> hang out with this guy for a long time and then write books about what he did. Uh, I think he passed in the 70s. So by the time that they were like writing, he was already gone, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So what they were attending was a workshop that he was running for the parents of kids at this school. And the idea of the workshop is central to their books because it's really the way that they narrate the process of um, explaining these ideas. They say at the very beginning of the book, they talk a little bit about their method and sort of what they feel like gives them the right to tell you how to raise your kids, right? Um, And 
based basically on the experience of how helpful they found these workshops that Gannat was running. They started running similar ones themselves, which are basically, which sound a lot like therapy, basically. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of a lot of parents get together and they just tell stories about their own experiences, their the challenges that they have. They talk out the sort of day-to-day things that they're really struggling with. And then these women would try to, using Gannat's framework, shape their their suggestions into sort of helpful responses. And so what the book is is actually a... Uh, let me see if I can find a, a passage here. They talk about sort of how these, how these workshops began. Sure. Um, they... Uh, at the same time, we interviewed people personally. We uh, recorded hundreds of hours of conversation with men, women, and children of diverse backgrounds, ranging in age from 3 to 88. Um, we talked to, let's see, there's a bit where they talk about, um, finally, we gathered together all our materials, old and new, and ran several groups of eight sections each on sibling rivalry alone. Some of the parents in these groups were enthusiastic right from the start. Some were skeptical and some were at their wit's end. All of them participated actively, taking notes, asking questions, role-playing in class, and bringing back and forth to each other the results of their experiments in their home laboratories. From all of these sessions (laughs) and from all of the work we had done in the years before comes this book, the affirmation of our belief that we as parents can make a difference. Um, so there, are, this is this book came out in the late uh, in the late seventies, and part of what feels weird about, uh, or I think it's the late seventies. Nineteen eighty is what I have. Nineteen eighty. Yeah. Oh no, no. Excuse me. That was um, how to talk so kids will. Oh listen yeah. No, this is eighty seven. Part of what feels different to, I think, me reading it now that might have felt less or like much more radical when you were reading it in 1987 is the basic idea that like kids don't have to fight with each other all the time. I mean, I think they are narrating as they talk about these anecdotes that they encounter in workshops a lot of parents were like, kids just fight. Like, they just kill each other and there's nothing I can do. <laughs> and so they're counteracting an idea of parenting that feels very different than the 2019 helicopter parent model. Sure, mm-hmm. sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I found a little bit on, um, like, reviews of the uh, of the first book, How to Talk So K- Kids Will Listen, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, on fatherly.com and one of the things that they say in a couple of their different interviews is like when they were surprised that men started showing up to their workshops as right as dads and stuff yeah because i mean the really important part about being a dad happens you know like that nine months before the birth and then you're pretty you know you're off the hook for the rest of the time you're off the hook until they start playing baseball is what i understand yeah Yeah. or if they're a girl you're off the hook until they're of marriageable age and then you're just sitting on the porch with a shotgun with a yeah. Or baseball keeping, bat, you yeah. know, keeping the men so, like, away. It's just, just all these weird. The yeah. So all these weird beta male SJWs start showing up to these meetings, and then what happens? Well, and yes. the the three things from this review that this that this guy pulled out on Fatherly was accept and acknowledge your kids' feelings. Instead of punishing, encourage cooperation and encourage autonomy and self confidence. Right, and so these all sound to me as a 2019 parent. These are like 
yeah, duh, like listen, <laughs> listen to your kids' feelings, right? Yes. And so I think I think in some sense that is a real yeah, duh situation and was for a lot of these parents even in these workshops that they are describing, but where the rubber really hits the road is like how you actually deal with that when it is like two kids who are screaming at each other. Sure, sure, sure. And so sure. they work through tons of very specific examples mm-hmm. of, and they do a lot of role play, which feels very stupid to read, and yet nevertheless <laughs> is kind of like in your head. Um, they have super simplistic cartoons. So I'll just so I'll hold up so you can see. They have super simplistic cartoons. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. This is like some Schoolhouse Rock <laughs> illustration level stuff. Yeah. Uh, so this is, for example, uh, a, from a chapter about siblings um, in roles, which we'll talk about more in a second. Mm-hmm. But that one is called No More Problem Children. Instead of focusing on, like, say if you have a child who is disabled and you are dealing with the sense of unfairness between your kids something that happens on both sides of both uh, an able-bodied sibling and then the disabled um, sibling instead of if you're say your disabled child says like um you know i can't read this book because i'm dumb you don't say you're not dumb you have a reading disability you say you can read it because i know that you read this part this part you can do let's focus on this part that you can do mm-hmm. um because they are attempting to dismantle the idea that you pigeonhole your kids into different roles for a reason that we can talk about in a second. Anyhow, the I just wanted to sort of the idea of evidence sure. is tricky in here. Sure. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the things about acknowledging feelings that stuck with me from even this brief review is like an example is when the carrot is making them free this is a quote. When the carrot is making them freak out or why the carrot is making them freak out is much more important than how ridiculous it is ridiculous it is that they're freaking out in the first place. So like <laughs> don't make fun of your kid for being weirded out by carrots, just like talk to them about why carrots weird them out, I it guess. It sounds like uh they've really gone a long way to focusing on making parenting a space for compassion, not judgment, you yeah. know? Sure. sure. Yep. If yeah. you're going to pipe up, you can, it just can't, it, it, it can not just be to make these simplistic puns. I felt like that was actually a great observation on my part. Uh-huh. 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 Um, but yeah, I can, I, I can attest, and we probably all have stories we can tell about times that our parents said or did something in response to something that we did that they probably thought was totally innocuous and that ruined something for us forever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like I could I could not for the life of me tell my parents when I had started dating anyone, like any of the people I ever dated. It was all I always build it up into this this into some big thing because as a kid, it's always like, "Ooh, Andrew has a girlfriend." You know the the sure. sort of I don't even know if I call it well meaning, but just like the, ribbing, yeah. Ri- but like, the but like the ooh, look at look at this guy. Ooh. He thinks he's <laughs> he thinks he's a real Casanova. But then you know it it ruins your ability to interface with your parents forever. So I don't know if y'all have <laughs> examples of that, but yeah. So <laughs> let's unpack that a little. 
One thing that they, this is more on the sibling side than that specific example, but one of the other foundations that they start from is acknowledging how much the things that happen in our childhood shape us as adults, which is another very obvious kind of thing. But they put, they break that down, particularly in terms of sibling um, siblings and the idea that having conflict with your siblings is useful for you. Um, from their struggles to establish dominance over each other, siblings become tougher and more resilient. From their rough housing with each other, they develop speed and agility. From their verbal sparring, they learn the difference between being clever and being hurtful. From the normal irritations of living together, they learn how to assert themselves, defend themselves, compromise. And sometimes, from their envy of each other's abilities, they become inspired to work harder or persist and achieve. And this idea that, like... Sibling rivalry plays a an important role in like our evolution as people, but the worst of it, um, as parents were quick to tell us, could seriously demoralize one or both of the children and even cause permanent damage. And so there's this idea that you're not trying to actually completely eliminate rivalry between kids because that is not something that would actually be helpful, but that you can enable them to engage in that rivalry in a way that doesn't diminish them as people or uh, rail, like steamroll over their feelings. Hmm. So for instance, Andrew, <laughs> it sounds to me <laughs> as though there was some element of your feelings that were not being acknowledged regarding dating someone. Uh-huh. And because the sensitivity of those underlying feelings were not acknowledged, you then could not share back and, like, tell them about those feelings because you knew that instead of being acknowledged, they were going to be mocked. Yeah. New or suspected based on past experience. Yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, like, a lot of what happens in these workshops sessions is actually these parents talking about their own experiences in childhood and their own sibling relationships that they then bring to the experience of trying to parent siblings. Sure, 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 sure. Which can be a tricky thing. Like, for example, if your mom was one of five children and the only girl and you have an older brother, you might, for example, never appropriately calibrate what's okay mocking and what's actually too mean mocking because <laughs> your brother will have been taught that like he has to be very careful about your feelings and your personal well-being and if you're hurt that's a big problem but if he's hurt that's still a big Suck problem but probably for him yeah uh and so then you'll just end up a teenage girl at school and you'll just be like viciously mean to all of the people, mostly boys, around you, because your assumption is just like, oh, well, like, whatever. Bo boys don't have feelings that you hurt. And maybe, maybe you would be a 34-year-old woman still gradually unlearning that. <laughs> Perhaps. For example. I know a couple times, like, you've never actually done this to me, but I know that you're attuned to it because a couple times you'll say something and I just, like, won't be around so I don't respond. And you're like, man, if you're not responding because you're mad at me, I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very thing. endearing and sweet. But um, um, I was very popular with my older brother's friends, largely because I was deeply feared. 
It's just like that um that Liz Lemon thing where she goes back in time and she figures out that she wasn't the nerd. She was the bully. Mm, like that yes. was me as a 13 year old with like all of my brother's 18 year old friends. Like I think he has one friend, Puya, who like I may have permanently damaged his self-esteem for no reason other than we played Egyptian rat race against each other a lot. And I always beat him. And like my trash talk was not lighthearted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they speak to that idea directly, actually. It is very Not clear which person in this podcast is a parent. Because there's a lot of just messiness going on. Just like getting us back on and track. And then yeah. someone shows up with dinner and is like, everyone shut up. Here we go. <laughs> but to but to get back to the book, Catherine, you're, you're talking about how, how some of the things it's talking about sound kind of well done now. But it does sound like it's trying to create a space for siblinghood that's like, yes... You will some some aspects of having a sibling will socialize you, but also as a parent, you can't just be like, well, this is how the world is. It's Mad Max and yeah, yes. you guys fight is like an unlimited amount because it'll just make you stronger. In the end. <laughs> right. And so and to, to speak directly to Margaret's sense that like she was not in some ways prepared the way that she should have been for being a person out in the world. Um so one of these women, they they conflate themselves into the same person, basically, as the narrator of this book. I was going to ask so, about that. Yeah. Okay. So all of their experiences, because they they both have children, and all of their experiences as a parent become sort of one, and they they change genders and things to adjust so that there's one narrator who has in this book two sons, and she describes her own experience of parenting them. And how hurt she is when they fight and they are not friends with each other. And they feel very, very different. Their personalities are very, very different. And she feels like a failure because her sons are not friends with each other. Um, And she says, I gave up. One of the happiest days of my life was with the day that I gave up the good friend's dream and replaced it with a more realistic goal. Instead of worrying about them becoming friends, I began to think about how to equip them with the attitudes and skills they would need for all of their caring relationships. Even if their personalities were such that they could never be friends, at least they would have a power to make a friend and be a friend. Huh. Whoa. Whoa. Right, that's a real galaxy brain take right there. <laughs> it is. It does. But when you say it out loud, it does feel like a galaxy, like a real galaxy brain take, not an ironic <laughs> one. You know, no, what I it mean? does. It absolutely does because a lot of what she is, a lot of what the the authors are trying to do is to teach parents how to equip children to deal with conflict, regardless of who they are conflicting with. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and so it's going to have a lot of impact with sibling relationships because that's the person that you are conflicting with all of the time. But ideally, what you're really doing is having the skill set to go out into the world and feel self-confident and know who you are and also not be super defensive and also not be super aggressive and to listen to other people and to compromise and like all of these Hey, Craig, welcome to the ad break. Thanks, Craig. Happy to be here. Well, Craig, I'm glad that you could make it because I heard that you could use some internet help. 
you're right, Craig, I could really use some help, you know, just getting on the internet, making sure people know what I'm up to, maybe letting them know what projects I'm working on, that sort of thing. Know what I mean, Craig? I sure do, Craig. It sounds like you should check out this week's sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is a great website that can help you make a great website. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers, which you, Craig, can still customize to make sure that your website has the right look and feel. And if you have any questions, Craig, they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support. This all sounds awesome, Craig. I'm excited to turn my cool idea into a website and maybe sell some products or services of all kinds. But I've got one question, Craig. What's that, Craig? How do I start? It's so easy, Craig. Just head to squarespace.com overdue for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com overdue for the free trial. And the offer code is overdue for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Sound like a plan, Craig? Sure does, Craig. Thanks so much. So how is it like structured in the book? Like, is there like a order? Is there a seven step, 12 step process? Right. (laughs) The way they structure it is the way they lay it out. Basically the way they tell the story of starting one of these workshop sessions with a group. And so the characters are these people who come back in each chapter and you get to know they don't really have names but it's like oh yeah that guy who was a twin brother and who all of his memories of being young are the fact that his parents never intervened and his twin brother beat him up all the time there's that guy who's got um this woman who has two boys who are like terrible to each other there's this one who has one boy and one girl and he like treats the girl really nicely and he ignores the brother like so you get to know kind of these parents even though they are sort of fictional conglomerations of a lot of these workshops Mm -hmm. um you get you they you get the sense that you are sort of coming back week after week to these workshop sessions and the chapters then progress through the way a workshop would work. So the first ones are very introductory and they they like write this dialogue so that the parents are frustrated that they're like not actually talking about dealing with fighting. Like they just <laughs> want tools to deal with what happens when their kids fight. And she basically refuses to give them those tools until she talks about the way that you need to approach parenting siblings and the mindset that she wants them to have earlier before you even get into like actually what happens when you're fighting. So for instance, chapter one is called brothers and sisters past and present. And that's sort of about the importance of acknowledging your own childhood in the things, the baggage that you are bringing to parenting your kids. Um, Chapter two is called Not Till the Bad Feelings Come Out. Whoa. Uh, um, am I being deprogrammed? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like Tell a, me ep- more. an episode of like Stranger Things or something. Not what? Till mm. the Bad Feelings Come Out. Mm. The central idea of that chapter is that when kids are mad, what you need to do is to often reflect back at them their own feelings because kids do not have an emotional vocabulary for the things that are happening to them and acknowledge those bad feelings. So if you have a kid who is coming to you and crying and they are super upset because their pencil broke, you don't say, oh, I'll give you another pencil. You say, 
oh, I'm so sorry. Are you sad because your pencil broke? And then the kid has a chance to actually feel that feeling of sadness before you wipe away their trauma about the fact that this pencil is broken. And again, not not ridiculing the fact that they are so sad Upset about this about pencil. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids get sad about all kinds of stuff. We all yeah. get sad about all kinds of stuff. It's real and hard so, when they're as cute as your Alice, though. Right. They're, like, how do you not laugh it's when really she's hard. just wailing? Fireworks, fireworks, I'm ready. Yes. So recently, in a classic siblings without rivalry thing, my eldest daughter was allowed to go to the fireworks, and my youngest daughter was not because her bedtime was way earlier than that, and she would for sure have crashed and burned like a firework. And she realized that Claire was allowed to go to these fireworks, and she was not, and she was so, so upset. And so I did. I was doing this book thing back at her where she was like just wailing about the fact that she couldn't go to the fireworks and I said you're really really sad that you can't go to these fireworks and she weeping went yeah and that did not solve the problem but it did help me move on to the next step which was to find some solutions for her to feel better which was that we had to watch a lot of videos of fireworks Mm. well Mm. that that gets Mm. into a thing that I saw in some of the other uh, reviews of their work, which is like encouraging that kind of low, like kind of, like limited autonomy of yeah. like instead of saying, "Oh, here's what I have decided is the solution to your feeling," it is, "Oh well, instead of this thing that you I said you couldn't do, here are four things that we could do." Or right. would you like these one of these things? Yeah. And then they are like making the choice and taking ownership of both. The feeling that they had and getting out of that feeling. Yeah, so that's something that they, that's a strategy that they get more into when they talk about the logistics of how you actually deal with fighting. Um, but so just, so not till the bad feelings come out is. <laughs> that is, it's never not going to be a funny title. It's a hilarious chapter title. But the idea it just sounds is, like a sounds like a fire and brimstone preacher trying to just get the bad feelings out. <laughs> Cast him into hell. It's a lost, stained album is what it is. <laughs> um, but the idea is that, like, you can't, your kid doesn't have space to move on to the solution part until yeah. you give them an opportunity to feel the the sad part. Okay. Or the frustrated part. Sure. So they, they, need, a, they need a way to voice that first. Chapter three is the perils of comparison. Oh, and chapter four is equal is less. Tell me more about that. Yes, yes. This is also one that from my own, even from my own apparently siblings without rivalry inflected childhood. <laughs> I was like, huh. I mean, it really did take me a bit to wrap my brain around because it is. it also feels the most, I think, counterintuitive. We have this idea that like all the way that you address feelings of inadequacy or unevenness is that you treat all kids as though they're equal. Everyone gets the same. There is no favoritism. There is no appreciation for one who doesn't get the other. No punishment, same way. And what their argument is here is that if you treat each of your kids equally, you are also denying that they are individuals with separate needs. And So if you say, for instance, if your kid comes to you and says, who do you love more, me or my sister? 
And what you say is, I love you both the same. What you're doing is really communicating that they are interchangeable to you, <laughs> that they are not individuals, that you love them both the same. They are both of your children, that this person in front of you is basically the same as their sibling with whom <laughs> their entire identity has been, up, you know, positioned <laughs> against. <laughs> I'm imagining you <laughs> just saying to Claire or somebody just like, yeah, you both got your good your good points and bad points like <laughs> um i mean one of the one of the like workshop anecdotes is a woman who remembers being really scarred by like asking her dad like which one do you love the best of us and he's like you are all three my little ducklings and she was like i don't want to be a little duckling like i'm a person who's not <laughs> like i need you to acknowledge that i am standing in front of you and so they have a couple of different strategies about like what things you would say to your kid in that what things you could say to your kid in that moment. But the the basic idea is that you say that you just reflect back at them what they need, which is I love you. Here are the things I love about you. And you don't even talk about their siblings. Well, what do you do if their sibling is there also? <laughs> yeah. So they talk about that a lot because that's something that happens constantly sure yeah. they're kids, like kids the living in the same them. house might be around at the same time <laughs> right this is why reality tv even is a thing at all as everybody who's trying to work out like who does mommy love the most is over it, and is over it again Puck yeah. or is it me yeah. yeah. And so I think they would say, you know, if you both have kids who they're both in front of you, you would say to this one, I love you. These are all the things I love about you. And then you would turn to the next one and say, these are all the things I love about you. I love you both for the people you are. Yeah, mm -hmm. I saw the I saw the phrase uh, love them each uniquely, not equally was a thing that I saw in writings about this book. Right. What happens if one of your kids is, is a, a stinker? Dad? Yeah. <laughs> Though. What does happen though? Actually, Wait, that is does, another that thing. Is, that is pretty high up on on our <laughs> list of stuff. Is just like what if what if we get a real stinker? Yeah, that is another thing that they they do address because they have actually a truly terrible father figure, and it cracked me up because literally every time somebody said something terrible in a work, workshop, it was a male pronoun. Like the women <laughs> were never the people who were asking these like really horrible questions. And there's a couple where literally like. Um, oh, yeah, literally right here. This is in the equal is less section. Um, uh, I thought that's what we, one of the things we've been saying here, that we don't have to worry about convincing kids that we love them all equally. It's not even humanly possible to love them the same. I'll bet each person here has a favorite. I'm the first to admit that my boys are good kids, but my daughter is the light of my life. Oh. This is this anecdote that comes up in this sure. workshop. Um the it continues all my alarms went off he sounded much too comfortable about a situation that was potentially dangerous did he have any idea what pain he would inflict on his children with that attitude including on the light of his life right so one of the things that they're really intense about is when you put your kids into any kinds of roles including that's the good one and that's the bad one it is yeah. equally damaged to all damaging to all yep. kids mm -hmm. and so what you need to do is to like Really, first of all, look inside and think about what it is about you that is making that kid the favorite. Like, what is it in yourself that you feel like you are lacking or addressing or that this kid is like fulfilling for you that your other that is different from your other kids? And then like fix yourself. Right. That's a real like you need to go to therapy situation. But also then to be just insanely focused on 
rededicating yourself to making each of your kids know that you love them for who they are and that they are different people and they should be allowed to be different people. This still doesn't answer the question of, but what happens if you just get a real dud? What do you mean by dud? Okay, I am not (laughs) a parent. Whoa. Uh Right? But I've worked with kids, right, of varying ages. I babysit, did Sunday school, camp counselor, and some kids. So you should write a book on kids. Are little shits. Okay. What do you do if you've got one kid who's a little shit and one kid who isn't? It would... It would be suge- what that would suggest to me is that there are some need that that one kid has, some needs that that kid has that are not being met. Okay, so we're we're working in a no fault zone for children. Yeah, it's called cooperation, Margaret. <laughs> Look, I'm just you I'm don't just punish kids; you cooperate with them. The if they questions. spilt milk on the floor, you don't say, "Margaret, why'd you spill the milk?" You just say, "Hey, we need a paper towel, huh, Margaret?" That's all you say. There have to be, there are consequences for actions and kids need to be given responsibility, which is something that works a lot better for older aged kids. Like I can't give my two year old a lot of responsibility because she thinks it's hysterical to just scatter. She doesn't give a shit, right? Like she doesn't, she doesn't have the, she doesn't have the capacity. She doesn't have the like literal brain connection capacity to give a shit. Claire did write a book about how Alice tries to help and she messes everything up. (laughs) Right. And it's not, it's not, that's not her fault that she can't give a shit. She just literally can't. She hasn't grown those faculties yet. Mm -hmm. No. And so you do have to meet kids where they are. But if you're dealing with persistent, persistent um, discipline issues, that's, you know, less of like a siblings issue and more of a like how to talk to kids so that kids will listen and listen so kids will talk issue. So we're not really discussing that book today, Margaret. Yeah, it's a different book. But it would suggest that there is that there is some level on on which that kid is asking for something, and that you don't know what that thing is necessarily, but it, they are not getting whatever it is. Sure, I I didn't know when I signed up to be a parent because mm-hmm. you did sign up. That's the definitely do, well, what happened. I mean, you do. There is a there's a there's process. A, there's a f- <laughs> form. An application process. <laughs> the form that you have to fill in. Just a lot of times, depending yeah. on <laughs> your situation. A lot um, of filling of forms. I didn't know that the person I'd have to parent the most is myself. Actually, that's literally a thing that I mean. That's 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 pretty much it, right? Yeah. Like a lot of a lot of this is that. Yeah, like it just sounds like it sounds like a lot of just policing your responses to things and and your feelings about things and i mean you are literally the adult in the room so you have to yeah consider the stuff that they can't and yeah it's interesting you use the word policing though andrew because from like it is it is like being responsible about what you say and whatever but it, it sounds like their process also starts with a lot of raw honesty and like self-reflection and honoring first. So it's not even like denying what you're feeling or what no. you're doing, but being honest about like what you said, Catherine, of like, well, why is that kid my favorite? Why did I pick that one yeah. um, over the other stinkers? 
Right. Um, I don't know. When someone else's kids like act out or do something they're not supposed to do, that's hilarious. Like oh, when, it's a so funny. Kid, <laughs> when a little kid cusses or like throws something, man, that's funny. But I, I there is nothing there's no word but denial for having to not think that's funny because it's my kid and I <laughs> have to fair. make sure that they know not to do that. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things this is not so much I don't I'm not I wouldn't worry about the funniness bit. I mean, there's some bits where you're going to do better if you have a straight face, but also by the fourth time that they throw whatever it is, you're not going to be laughing anymore. That you're going to be yeah. you're going to be angry. And so the <laughs> issue is the issue is really what happens and policing of your feelings when you are really pissed, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is a huge struggle. And the things that they say about that are first of all that um if you screw up and you will screw up, you get you get infinite second chances. Like they will throw more shit tomorrow and you can do better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you can tell them, I fucked this one up. Probably not that way. And I'm going to try better next time. Right. And then you like, say, well, I'm going to try better next time because I just said fuck in your face. Right, exactly. So I'm going to try better <laughs> next like, time. There is no reason to not be honest with your kids about like if and I remember my mom doing that actually quite a bit. Like she would do like literally the things that just straight out of this book. She had gone back to work. She would come home and like the house is just up pit and we were not disciplined by the babysitters in the same way that my mother was and so we were also basically feral after like three hours with a babysitter <laughs> and she would walk in and it was just like she was walking all she was she was tired right and so you snap at them you're angry you're trying to do stuff you have to get dinner on the table and you snap at them and I remember her doing that and I remember her then saying like Oh wow! I should not have been. I as I should not have yelled at you that way. I'm really sorry that I yelled at you that way. And then the next really important step, which is, I came home from work and I was really really tired, and that's why I was feeling that way. It doesn't give me permission, but that is that is why I was so upset, and I'm really sorry about that. I'm gonna try better next time. Like you get infinite chances to do that. So Andrew, this yeah. might actually be even worse news. It's not just that you have to have to like be in control of your feelings. You're like awesome at that, but it's also that sometimes you have to talk about them. You do in a you controlled do. way. Well, it's interesting because that that Catherine like that that exact explanation construction is this like leaving room for them to know that you're feeling something is like the exact same thing you were just. You're talking about when, like, someone is sad because a pencil broke. Someone is sad because they can't go to fireworks. You need to leave room for them to feel that way and then work on fixing it instead of trying to hop right to fixing it. Or yeah, like, like right let me make to, up for yeah. the fact that I was angry. Let me just first say I was angry. And why? Yeah. And then yeah. I was thinking that, that yeah. it's, honestly, it's, like, incredibly good advice for dealing with adults also. Because... Yeah. So often with adults, you go and you're like, ugh, I'm feeling this dumb feeling. And somebody immediately starts trying to solve it. And you're like, fuck you, no. I don't want you to solve it. Just, like, let me sit in this shitty feeling for five minutes and, like, sit in it with me and be like, ooh, that's rough. This is another thing thing that I've had to learn. Susanna is really good at is, like, recognizing when I'm just grumping around and I'm going (laughs) to grump until I grump myself out. And then later, from whatever hole I've buried myself in with my feelings, I will, like, text her about how I grumped at her. (laughs) And we will work out what I was grumping about via iMessage, and then we'll be fine. (laughs) It is interesting to, like, 
I in kind of what we've been talking about and a little bit when you were talking about the role play stuff earlier, Catherine, like as a theater educator, I can see and hear it through and through in their approach here and in their like, I'm just going to reflect back what these people are experiencing and what their situation is. I'm going to allow people to get to like an honest place about a thing before they before I teach them what to do with it. Um, it's just like what else about like the personal experience of the authors shines through because we've gotten a lot about like the anecdotes and the role play stuff. But is there other elements of them as parents that are coming through or do they kind of downplay that? Uh, so they they tend to bring out them as parents when there is some particular element of a workshop story that gets really intense and upsetting. So, for example, like they'll they resort to themselves as an example when stuff gets super intense. When they get to the actual mechanics of how you deal with siblings fighting with each other, including physically fighting with each other, um, they talk about, you know, because the the strategy for how you deal with fighting when you're dealing with like this emotional stuff and all this sort of thing, you present, you walk up to the fight, say your kids are both fighting about, you know, they want, they both want to play with the same toy. You reflect their feelings back at them. You say, okay, kid A, you are really pissed because this is your Good toy album. and yep. you don't want to have to, <laughs> you don't want to have to share. Kid B, you're really frustrated because you know it's their toy, but you feel like they never share with you so and it's le- not. Less good, less good album. Yep. It's not fair. Uh, I see we only have one toy. Like, what are we going to do? And then you leave, right? Because you want to give them the opportunity once their feelings have been heard out. You want to give them the opportunity to come up with the solutions themselves. But you obviously can't do that when one kid is actually about to seriously harm the other kid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everyone has a right to be safe, right? And so when they're talking about this and parents are saying that they don't feel like they believe that this kind of method is going to actually address a situation where a kid is seriously harming another kid, the uh, sort of amalgam workshop leader gets really upset and really quiet and was like, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I have these two sons. They fought terribly. And at one point, I walked into the kitchen and my older son had heated up a spoon on the stove and then Ugh. stuck it on my little kid. Whoa! See? Mm. Dud kid. No. Mm-mm. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> because if you go in with dud kid, you're only ever going to have dud kid. It's the right? secret. It's the secret again. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> It's true, though. If you go in having labeled that kid as the dud, you're never going to give them a space to not be the dud, right? And so what you need to do is, first of all, separate them, obviously, and talk to each of them individually about how they feel, about how they got to that place, and why they were so frustrated with each other. And do this thing where you are truly listening to the things that they are frustrated by and, like, taking their frustration seriously, even though they often further frustrate you to listen to. Um, And then give them a space where they can work out these frustrations. Like, okay, 
you know, you guys are really, really in a place where you have a hard time getting along, but I cannot let you hurt each other. I can't let you call names either, but honestly, it would be better if you screamed at each other than you burned your brother with a spoon. So what if next time we try screaming? Like, like literally anything. And you suggest you don't tell them. Mm-hmm. And you then listen to how they how they respond to those suggestions because their feelings about those responses, those suggestions have to be taken into account as well. Um, That's so really interesting. You don't just yeah. yell you never try to burn your brother with a spoon you heated on the stove. That's not step one. That feels like step one. You yell, I cannot let you hurt each other. You use I. Yeah, that's what it is. And the other thing is, um, you know, you comfort you comfort the victim. You don't give attention to the kid who was doing the burning. The attention needs to go to the kid who was burned. But you also don't, uh, in that relationship, you can't then tell them that one of the kids is the good kid and one of the kids is the bad kid. Because it is equally damaging for both of the kids if you then say, you are constantly doing this kind of thing and I can't have it anymore. Your brother never hurts you and you are always the aggressor. Because what you're doing is casting them in these roles that then define who they are, define them in opposition to each other, and then do not give them space to be the to swap those roles when they need to. Because we all need to have a way where we can think of ourselves as the aggressor or as the the sort of like pitiable victim we need to be able to understand that our identity is is not just that simplistic reductive thing sure 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 Hmm. um and so the problem is that when you are coming in and you're saying like you're the bad one and you're the good one which is sort of the the underlying thing of like you burned your brother right (laughs) You heated up a spoon on the stove and burned your brother. It's just it's just industrious. Yes. Is the thing. And like That's so what she... I love about you is you're so creative. <laughs> and you work and real I'm, hard. And, and you operate worried. stoves. She's worried as any of us would be like, Oh my god, my kid is a sociopath. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right? I'd be very worried about that. And mm-hmm. what it what it takes is is really sitting down with both kids and without saying you're the bad one saying like and you also you have to catch them being being good and you have to catch the moments when you say like you are so funny and smart and you're an example in so many ways and these are the things that I love about you because then they they can rise to that idea of themselves that's just inception i know that movie that's how that works <laughs> right Right. So, so yeah, so like that's, I mean, this is sort of, we can talk about a lot of more specific examples, but that's basically these kinds of ideas that you can't put them into roles, that you can't just say that they're all equal and deny their individuality, that you give them an opportunity to find their own solutions to these kind of fights, but also you can't, you have to let them feel physically safe in their own homes and you have to make sure that that is a barrier that can't get crossed, mm. that these are the kinds of just foundational things that they're that they're trying to talk through. And then the book is basically endless iterations, endless anecdotes of smaller versions of those ideas. Yeah, it sounds like it like it fits that not self-help, but that kind of help book model of like, here's a principle and here's 30 examples for you to choose from. Of of that thing either working or not working based on yeah. how it was yeah, used. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And it's you know on the one hand you're like all right I got it like I got it I got the idea I got it I got it I go but it is also 
fascinating. I mean, it was fascinating for me reading through being like, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. And then there would be like one anecdote where I was like, oh shit though. Like that one, (laughs) I do remember. And like, it is fascinating how they really strike you. Suddenly there'll be one that either you remember or that you witnessed like yesterday (laughs) that, that, that makes the the nuances of trying to implement these things feel more important. Do you remember one of those that like really struck you? That really struck me. Um, I mean, I, so they have this book was published in 87 and then it was immensely popular right away. It was like this, you know, bestseller. It's it's hard for us to go back now and appreciate how much how radical this felt for a lot of things mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people. But they started to then also get a lot more feedback, one of which was this thing we talked about earlier, that a lot of these suggestions are more useful for older kids than they are for younger kids. Mm -hmm. And so they have this afterward chapter where they just do like a grab bag of like a bunch of different specific examples, anecdotes that they like never had a chance to really get to. And then... um, and then just growing through, like, literally these things are like property rights, one mob- model for dealing with private property, grab, how do you deal with grabbing? And I was like, and for younger kids, and like, grabbing and the urge to grab, like, that is the shit that I deal with all the time <laughs> right now with right. a five and a two year old that like, isn't addressed quite as much in the earlier chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, so like... Uh, you know, they talk about this, this, the, the urge to grab and like how important it is to literally just sit down with your kid and be like, even though you know you're not supposed to grab something, there is something inside you that just really wants to. There could be a hundred toys in the room, but somehow the best toy is always the one someone else is holding. And just the idea of like actually talking with your, like saying that to your kid mm-hmm. so that they, cause I don't, I don't think I acknowledge my kid's urge to grab, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Urge that to one... Grab is another good album. No. <laughs> well, yeah, because in that moment, it's it's so much, it's, it's in my classroom experience, it's way more tempting to say, like, let's all of us in the room acknowledge why, how the kid whose thing was grabbed, like whose toy was grabbed, like, feels. Yes. Let's talk about their, their terror and their experience, because we can yes. all learn from that. Yes, mm-hmm. but you have to equally acknowledge the kid who wanted to grab. Yeah, the kid because... who wanted to grab is a great <laughs> Shel Silverstein book. <laughs> it feels like a, like a, um, a yeah. bridge to Terabithia, like a, a coming of age novel. <laughs> wanted to grab. Or similarly, you know, they have this other anecdote about a five-year-old um, who's frustrated by their and who hits. And who mm. is frustrated that they're, or no, whose younger sibling hits them. And they're not allowed to hit them. And yet somehow the younger sibling is still hitting them. And just that is a super unequal, unfair situation. What do you do about How do you tell your five-year-old it's not the same? It's not okay for anyone to hit each other. But also my response to you hitting your little sister is not the same as my response to your little little sister hitting you. They can't be because you are different people. Um, and you are at different stages. And so one of the things they suggest is like... Um, I know it's not easy to be around your sister when she hits, but you still can't hit her back even when she hits you. She's still very young and she has a lot to learn. But if we all do our job, you and me and your dad, and we teach her better ways to get what she wants, little by little she will understand that it's okay that for her to ask for things and it's not okay for her to hit. And the idea of like bringing your older sibling into the process Mm. That is well, something. That's, yeah, that's yeah. part of the older kid experience is just like, 
you are you are asked to help more like both both because you're physically more capable of doing it and emotionally more capable early on but then later just because that becomes the way things kind of are like at least in my experience and i think most yeah. oldest kids experience and i think what they would say about that though is that it is really important to also sit down with your older kids and acknowledge how unfair that is yeah yeah mm-hmm. sure because it's it's deeply unfair that the older one is asked to be a parent in a way that the younger one never is. That's a responsibility no kid really, you know, wants to have. And you are giving it to them. You are putting it on them. And so when they act out, often what that is is them frustrated that they are taking on responsibilities that they shouldn't have to at a younger age. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Um, my last question for you, and maybe it goes nowhere and we're just done, is um, – Especially because this book came out a while ago, does the, does the does the book make any distinctions between like boys and girls? Does it does it do any sort of gender essentialism stuff that I, I don't know? I assume it's been revised since it was originally published, but is it? Are there any anecdotes or anything that's specific to two girls, two boys, boy and a girl, like? It Anything does, organized it, around it does, that? It does almost nothing about gender. Okay. I mean, it, right. it basically considers kids to be amorphous gender blobs. When gender comes into it, it is on the parent side. And it sure. is usually in the sense that um, it is like fathers who, ha- who like treat their daughters differently than their sons. Interesting. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, I could actually see that because that gets back to the like the role thing where you don't right. want to like put kids into roles as like you're the brother, you're the sister. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how does it tackle, does it, and this is, this will like just a, a glom onto your question, Andrew, like does it acknowledge different parenting situations? I was surprised to find a quote from them in like a 1995 interview where they somebody in the New York Times was like, has the breakdown of the traditional family affected learning in the classroom? And they were like, let's be careful about talking about it that way. Kids are kids and parents are parents and we all got to live. Yeah, it really it really does not. It's one of the weaknesses of a text like this that it doesn't have a doesn't really make space for talking about the different challenges of divorced parents, of a death in the family, of non-traditional families. Um, but I would say, I mean, just just basically, uh, you know, from my understanding of of the the things that they want parents to take on to themselves is that they would ask parents to just be as honest about their feelings with their kids as they can without without making them responsible for their for their you know and that can stress apply to, or whatever yeah that can apply mm-hmm. to anyone sure right exactly mm-hmm. yeah i think that the the dumbness of that question and the vagueness of it proves conclusively that david brooks is more of an idea than he is a person like it's an ethos that has been with us for a long time and will be with us long after he's gone that was at the beginning of clinton's second term there was a lot going on with the traditional family sure i mean that was when he was still with his first wife rather than having divorced her for his 29 year old research assistant you know you're talking about dave brooks yeah Yeah. i sure am yeah (laughs) <laughs> um, Catherine, I have one last question for you too, which is, does it address much how to deal with it when people outside of your family are putting roles on your kids? Yeah. Uh, yes. Cause that was actually much more my experience of siblinghood is that my parents were really good about not putting roles on us, but 
out in the world, my brother was the smart one. Yeah. School does that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they talk about that a ton. They talk about it more in um sort of like extended family situations like sure. grandma comes and she pays attention to the baby but she doesn't pay attention to you or like yes one kid gets pegged yeah they do talk about like one kid gets pegged as the x person and one kid is the y person um and as much as possible the idea is that you as parents would sort of no- would notice that and then when your kids are younger would like take that back to whoever is doing that kind of pegging and be like yo cut it the fuck out it's super toxic mm-hmm. but but also when you can't do that cuz the world exists um <laughs> Again, just taking it back to your kids and being like, that's, there are a lot, you are also, you know, all of these things that you value in that person. You are just as capable. I mean, they, this is another author story, but she talks about how, like, her parents could only afford piano lessons for one daughter, or so at least they felt like. And because the one daughter was externally validated as super good at piano and the other daughter wasn't, mm-hmm. they only gave piano lessons to, like, the one who was validated as super good, even though the other daughter loved it just as much. And it would have been... Regardless of what the teacher said, regardless of like whatever else all of these measures were, if the parent had just said, wow, you really love this, mm-hmm. like that would have been a lot, have gone a lot of the way to dismantling some of that like role mechanism that they're talking about there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's super interesting. It's, I mean, read a lot of reading this book is like, this is dumb. This is obvious. This is dumb. Oh, I need to underline every paragraph. <laughs> right? Like And I think I think just to go a little broad like all all parenting books that I have encountered are like that where you're like this is stupid, I don't need it and then but I am going to take out the bits that I that I suddenly do recognize are really useful for me. Sure. I'm not going to stress about the bits that are not useful for me because there's no point and everyone is different, but it is really just about trying, like looking for the things that, that do speak to you as helpful um, and trying very hard not to judge yourself for when you do not meet up with those expectations Andrew. or when like you're just parts of this book don't mean anything <laughs> to me right now. And the only way I know part, how to do it. Did you hear the yeah. part around not judging yourself? Whatever. Shut up. Everybody shut up. <laughs> Well, so Andrew, do you feel ready? You're good. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm set now. Okay. <laughs> I haven't had the first one yet, but when I have a second one, I'm totally. I mean, honestly, a lot of this stuff. So yeah. much of this is about the relationship between the parent and the kid. That it. I'm not going to say it's a shame that it's mostly marketed toward people with multiple kids, but well, the advice does seem more broadly applicable than the title would suggest. Yeah. Well, they say this is like they had a chapter in the first book that was about siblings and it was too big and so sure. they like made this book. Okay. So it's not surprising that like it's based on the principles from the other book first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Catherine, thanks for filling the role of the expert. Sorry to put a role on you here today. <laughs> it's fine. I will I will rise to your expectations of me. And and be happy to do so. 
I recognize that you're happy to be the expert. That's great. Oh, Craig, I appreciate I see that you are grateful for my see, presence. See, that's the thing is you start talking like you're in couples therapy and then <laughs> then that like turns me off of it. <laughs> Andrew, why does it make you uncomfortable to think about couples therapy? Because you sound like your brain has been replaced by a robot thing. I don't know. People, people, may, maybe the point of knowing how to interact in this way is so you can remove the rules and talk to each other like humans later i guess i don't know but it's a very it's very careful and and considered in a way that doesn't always feel natural i guess you're just you're not horny for it is what you're saying i'm not gonna say i mean let's talk about why you feel that i express my emotions in horniness or not horniness What a good podcast. What a good (laughs) podcast we did. Yeah. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks thanks for for coming on and helping us out. Um, If folks, this is an interesting TV podcast that you guys do. Could you tell me where I could find out more information? It sounds like a good one. I don't know. It's at atvpodcast.com or twitter.com slash avpodcast. And you can follow us all individually on Twitter where, among other things, we browbeat showrunners into recognizing our podcast spinoffs. No one was browbeaten. We were just starting an organic hashtag campaign. It's a grassroots (laughs) movement. (laughs) (laughs) Giving the people what they want, which is an episode by episode breakdown of the long canceled TV show bones. Don't say long canceled about a thing that was around for 12 seasons. That doesn't seem appropriate. <laughs> long running and long canceled. It can be both things. Uh, if our listeners want to share their thoughts about this book or about siblings or whatever, they can send an email about it to overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up online at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Andrew, if folks just need to know more about our show, where should they go? Overduepodcast.com. We have links to Apple Podcasts and Google Play in our RSS feed. Uh, subscribe there, get episodes when they come out, and rate, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. But only if you want to do a good one, please. Um, we've also got a Patreon page at patreon.com slash overdue pod. And uh, on that website, we have a new listeners page that I think we're due for another update. Oh, yeah. Of. But uh, it's episodes that we're particularly happy with that if you don't just want to start with a book, you know, which is how a lot of people do it. Um, it gives you a place where you can kind of get into the catalog that's not starting at episode one because I don't know why anybody does that when they start listening to a new podcast. Don't why do that. would you do that? Why? <laughs> you can find episodes that Catherine and Margaret have been on, on as well. They are pros at this. Thank you both again for being here. It was our, our pleasure. pleasure. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And until we talk to you next week. I feel strongly that you should try to be happy, but really you can just feel the way that you feel, and that's fine. That was a HeadGum Podcast.